Now remember, we learned from the opening verse to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. That's his audience. The 12 tribes who are dispersed. Some of your translations say scattered. Diaspora, scattered like seed. And how were these 12 tribes scattered? Through persecution. And so we studied in the opening message from Acts eleven nineteen. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution... So persecution brought scattering, but God used it to bring the gospel to new places. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are continuing our study in the book of James, and today Pastor Carl highlights that even though the church was scattered due to persecution, God used it to bring the gospel to new places. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he examines trials and how we are to conduct ourselves as Christians. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bible and turn to the epistle of James chapter 1. James is one of the general epistles in the New Testament. When you think about the New Testament, you can divide it in your mind into at least four major sections. There's what we call the historical books that comprise the four gospels through Acts. The four Gospels summarize the life of Christ when he was here on earth. And the book of Acts describe the historical record of the next 30 years as he works through the church, starting with the ascension. And then there are the Pauline epistles, which would be 1 Corinthians through the book of Philemon. Then after the Pauline epistles, there's the non-Pauline epistles, what we typically call the general epistles or sometimes the Catholic epistles. The word Catholic is a Greek word, katholikos, and you can hear our word Catholic in it. It means according to the whole. And so in the great confessions of the faith, we are affirming the universal body of Christ, that while this is one local expression, we say in the Apostles' Creed, of course not written by them, but summarizing their doctrine, I believe in the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Likewise, in the Council of Nicaea, they wrote, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So we're affirming the Catholic, that is the universal body of Christ, regardless of one's denominational stripe. And it's called the holy Catholic church because if you've been saved, God has imputed the righteousness of Christ to your account. Every believer in the New Testament is called a holy one or sometimes simply translated a saint. So there are the eight general epistles or Catholic or universal epistles that are not written to a particular church in a particular geographical location, but to the entire body of Christ, regardless of city or locale. They're all written in that way, but some have that as their principal focus. And so those would include Hebrews and First and Second Peter and First and Second and Third John. And on either side, you have the two James books, the two J books, James and the book of Jude. And then Revelation, which, of course, is not a general epistle, but it's in a category all by itself. Now, remember, we learned from the opening verse to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. That's his audience. The 12 tribes who are dispersed, some of your translations say scattered, diaspora, scattered like seed. And how were these 12 tribes scattered? Through persecution. And so we studied in the opening message from Acts eleven nineteen. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution. 
So persecution brought scattering, but God used it to bring the gospel to new places. Now, I didn't address it in the opening verse. We spent a long time on one verse of Scripture, but the question has come up, and it comes up often, so let me just answer it. People will often call into the Bible line, or some of you have asked me, what about the ten lost tribes? Well, there are no such thing as ten lost tribes. Uh, There is a theory called the ten lost tribes theory, and most of the proponents claim to be one of those ten lost tribes that were found. Sometimes this doctrine was taught in Europe, sometimes in Africa, but its object is always somehow to make these ten tribes that were supposedly found the new Israel, new Israelites, and somehow their religion typically superior. It was found in Anglo or British Israelism, where they said that the ten tribes came to the United Kingdom and the British people represent that. Still a popular doctrine amongst some people there. And then there's African Israelism, who also argue that they somehow are representative of these ten lost tribes. Then you have Mormons who want to make the American Indians the ten lost tribes. So you have all these different positions, but understand they were never lost. Now, there were 10 tribes in the northern kingdom after it split that in fulfillment of prophecy were carried away by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And approximately 100 years or so later, the two southern tribes were carried away. When they were carried away, Assyria had already been conquered by the Babylonians. And so in 586 B.C., the two southern tribes were brought And all 12 were in the same geographical location. And so you will see, as we recently studied in the Christmas message, we learn of Anna in the tribe of Asher. That's one of the 10 northern tribes. So if they were lost, they're certainly not lost to God. And in James' thinking, they're not lost to him because that is the people to whom this book is being written. Now, with that said, let's read from this general epistle starting in verse 12. Verse 12 was the last verse we studied, but it's a hinge verse in the chapter, so I want to begin there. Follow along in your Bible. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Samson is certainly one of the more famous Old Testament saints, and someday you will meet him in heaven. He was born to godly parents, and at his birth, he was set aside as a Nazarite. He was a man of great courage. He was a man who served as a strong leader, as one of the judges during the time in Israel's history when they were ruled by judges. He was a man of incredible, supernatural, God-given physical strength. However, while he had extraordinary physical strength, 
He lacked internal strength. On the outside, he was powerful and impressive, but on the inside, he was weak and vulnerable. We often say he was a he-man with a she problem. And if you've read the biblical record, then you know that lust, sexual lust, ultimately destroyed him. Samson did not know how to face temptation. And so if you're listening online, there is a place for you to download the outline. Most of you have come into the auditorium, picked one up, and I want you to take notes. It shows me, one, that you're hungry for God. I spend usually no less than 25, sometimes 35 hours preparing this text of Scripture. And I want you to know it, and I don't want you just to hear it. I want you to go home and study it and meditate on it and be changed by it. And so you can see the topic this morning is facing your temptations. Now, let me bring you into the context of our passage. If you remember, chapter 1 divides into two parts. The first 11 verses deal with trials on the outside. Then verses uh, uh, 13 through 27 deal with temptations on the inside. And verse 12 is kind of a hinge verse connecting the two. You'll remember he began in verse 2 through verse 4 by instructing us to have joy in the midst of our trials. So notice in verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Not if, but when, because trials are a fact of life. So Job could say, yet man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. I've sat around many a campfire where God has brought that verse of Scripture to my mind. It's not a question of whether or not you will have trials, but when you will have trials. If you're born of a woman, anyone here not born of a woman? I think not. If you're born of a woman, then you will have trials in this life. And so we are to consider it all joy, and in turn, we are to let the God-designed trial have its purpose. Verse 4, look at those two words in let. It represents a choice. It's actually an imperative. It's a command. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect, teleos, mature, incomplete, lacking in nothing. We are to let God accomplish what the trial is designed to do. Or have you been doing that this week? You see, the real test is not if we have a trial, but how we go through that trial. And God wants us to consider it all joy. And so James reminds us we're to have joy in the trial. And the only way to have joy in the trial sometimes is to ask God for wisdom in the midst of the trial. What's the function of it? What's its purpose? We take verse 5, and we use it all the time for major decisions in life, and that is certainly a legitimate application. But sometimes we miss it in its context. It's asking for wisdom in the midst of a trial. So verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Why is it that sometimes we fail the trial? Because we lack wisdom. And typically the reason we lack wisdom is because we haven't asked for it. We're going to see here that James, who has as a major theme in this epistle prayer, he will remind us that many times unanswered prayer is born in the fact that it was unasked prayer. 
And so we are to ask, and we are to ask in faith, verse 6 says, but he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. And when we fail to ask in faith, verse 7 promises, for that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Then, if you remember, in verses 9 through 11, James reminds us that whether you are the brother of humble circumstances, that is, a Christian who is economically deprived, or whether you are the rich man who has gathered much of this world's goods, in either case, trials is the great equalizer. Now, don't miss the progression of thought here in verses 9 through 11. It's related to this whole theme of trials. He's not entering into a new subject. Look at verse 9. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. James is reminding us that trials exalt the poor man. Why? Because in spite of his poverty, he has no less of God's attention, and God wants to generously give him wisdom as he would anyone else. Whether you are rich or whether you are poor, God gives wisdom. Why? Because he's not a respecter of persons. He gives wisdom, James says, without reproach. The poor man is also exalted. Why? Because he can have as much of the character of God that that trial brings as the rich man. So by contrast, the rich man is humbled through his trials, as verse 11 indicates. Why? Because he realizes how temporal his riches are. Many times, it's not until someone is in the thick of a deep trial that they begin to assess what is really important in life. And so the rich man is also humbled in his trials because he realized he needs something that his money cannot buy. And that is the wisdom to go through that trial that will shape him into the character of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice verse 12, because as I mentioned, it's a transition or a hinge verse. It connects the two halves of the chapter. Look at it. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, the Greek word translated perseveres, as I noted last time, is a military term. It means to hold up courageously under fire. It refers to someone who's not trying to escape the battle, but someone who is going to go through and endure the battle. And so it is with trials. He is saying the rich man or the poor man, each is blessed if he lets the trial produce its end result in life, namely maturity. So here in verse 12, if you remember, he gives two promises to the believer. To the believer who perseveres under trial, there is a promise for this life, and there's a promise for the next life. In this life, he will be blessed because he will have a rich and full life as he experiences the joy of the Lord and he's conformed to Christ's image. But in the next life, he will receive the crown of life. Now, don't misunderstand the passage. James is not saying that perseverance through trials results in eternal life because salvation is by grace. It is never earned or merited. He's speaking about the rewards that accompany salvation. And very often in the New Testament, those words are described with crowns. 
So don't misunderstand. The Bible does not teach that the guy who perseveres through trials will somehow merit salvation, as some have falsely taught from this verse. And also know that heaven will not be the same for every believer, that some will have greater reward than others. James is saying that if we persevere well under the trial, that we'll be blessed even more in the next life. And many times God uses trials, among other things, to see what's really in our hearts. Do you remember just before Israel went into the promised land, Moses reminded the people in Deuteronomy 8 in verse 2, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And so the real question is, will I continue to serve God faithfully through the trials of life or not? Will I hold up or will I fold up? And there's a lot of Christians, when life gets hard or demanding or exhausting, they quit. Sometimes they don't even show up on a Sunday morning. They have a class to teach, a, a, a door to manage, a, a place of service with our children or in the nursery, and they just don't show up. Why? It's rainy. It's cold. They've had a tough week, so I'm not coming. Listen to your pastor. God does not give the crown of life to just any Christian, but to those who love him. Talk is cheap. Many people talk about how they love the Lord, but it will show up in your perseverance. A real and vital love for the Lord Jesus keeps going when it gets tough. Now, as we come to verse 13, James turns from trials from without to temptations from within. And what's interesting is that little Greek word that is used in verses 2, 12, and 13, perazo, translated temptations, is the same word. In fact, the King James uses the same word in each of those verses. Let me read those three verses from the King James. In James 1, 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. Addition, in verse 12, the King James says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. And then similar to the New American Standard, they use the same word together in verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Now, technically, it's a very accurate translation because in each of those three verses, the same Greek word is used. But understand, in 17th century English, the word that's used had a dual nuance. It could refer to a trial or it could refer to some kind of pull towards evil. And the context determined which. Well, sadly, in 21st century English, it might be a little misleading and even downright confusing because we don't have that same nuance with the word temptation. So, for instance, if you read Genesis 22 and verse 1 in the King James, it says, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. Now, that might be very confusing today because James just told us that God never tempts anyone. Today, we would render it God 
tempted, uh, tested him. And by the way, they only have one word in Hebrew, like in Greek, and the context determines which is in view. So the meaning typically with so many words are determined by context. Maybe this chart will help you to discern between trials and temptations. Trials are allowed by God for our good, whereas temptations are attacks from Satan for evil. Trials are God's chisel to shape our character, whereas temptations are Satan's solicitations to destroy our character. Trials are designed for our maturity to cause us to stand. Temptations are designed for our misery to cause us to stumble. Trials are God's test designed to develop you, whereas Satan's temptations and solicitations are designed to destroy you. So there's a big difference between a trial and a temptation. And so verse 3 spoke of endurance through trials, whereas verse 12, in verse 12, spoke of perseverance under trials, whereas when we come to our text this morning, temptations are something that are to be resisted. And so in verse 13, James is switching gears. He's moving from trials to temptations, which forces us to ask a question. Why does he connect the two? What is the relationship between a trial from without and a temptation from within? And the answer is simply this. If we're not careful, the testings on the outside of our life can become temptations on the inside if we do not properly respond in the way in which God wants us to. When life gets tough, when our circumstances don't go the way we thought they ought to go, when the kids get sick, when you lose your job, when the transmission goes in the car, when your spouse deserts you for someone else, when someone ridicules you for being a serious follower of the Lord Jesus, if you're not careful, the testings on the outside can become temptings on the inside. So instead of considering all joy... And letting the trial have its intended result, we may find ourselves complaining and questioning and belly aching and even resisting God's will. Do you remember when God brought Israel out of Egypt by his mighty and powerful hand? No sooner had he split the Red Sea in two and brought them safely on dry ground into the land of promise, they began to complain. If you remember, we read in Exodus 15, God, the scriptures has tested them when their water supply dried up. And what was their response? They began to murmur and to blame God. You see, their test had become a temptation and sadly they failed. There's a lot of Christians like that. Sometimes they're tested, sometimes even with hypocrisy in a church, and they just, they just give up and they stop going to church. And their test became a temptation. And so if we are to mature and grow up in Christ, we have to faith, face both testings and temptations God's way. Now, sometimes there's no test at all. It just immediately comes with a temptation. And so if we are to face temptation with victory, 
There are three critical principles that James underscores for us in this passage that I want you to jot down and go home and think about and meditate on this week. The first principle that James teaches us is that to face temptations well, we must understand man's nature. To face temptation well, we need to understand man's nature. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So there are two critical aspects of man's nature that are underscored in these two verses. First, I am reminded that it is in man's nature to blame. It's in man's nature to blame. Again, we read in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. When a man is tempted, his tendency is to blame someone. Now, I want you to circle the word that I asked you to circle in verse 2, and it's the word when. And once again, verse 13 does not say if. It says not if you are tempted, but when you are tempted. Listen, you will never reach a place in your spiritual life when you are not tempted. No one is immune to temptation. The monk living behind the monastery wall has as much opportunity for temptation as the businessman does down in the office. No one is immune. In fact, when you become a Christian, very often the temptations don't decrease, they increase. Why? Because you are now a friend of God and by extension, you are an enemy of Satan. And so, as a new Christian, people often say, look, the devil seems to be chasing me. Yes, because you've switched kingdoms. You've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. A new Christian was telling his boss how the devil always seemed to be dogging his footsteps. And they were out duck hunting one day, and the boss said, Sam, you're kind of a strange creature. You claim to be a Christian, and yet you're always talking about wrestling with temptation and always talking about the devil being after you. Sam, I'm not a Christian, and the devil never seems to be after me. So Sam said to his boss, Boss, suppose we're out duck shooting, hunting these ducks today, and we shot two ducks, and one duck just lay on the ground, flipping and flopping all over the place. Which duck would you go after first? He'd say, I'd go after the one that was flopping. That's right. That's what you do, boss, and the devil knows that you are the dead duck. <laughs> no spiritual life. Never born from above. So no real threat to the evil one because you're asleep in his arms. But when you become a Christian, and especially when you begin to grow, and you become a threat to Satan's kingdom, sometimes the heat is turned up. Listen, don't ever get so proud in your thinking that you have overcome some area of your life where you think you could never again fall in that area. When you are doing that, you are filled with pride and you are tempting the devil to tempt you. The Apostle Paul made this statement in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 
He had just reviewed Israel's history in the first 10 verses, and he said these examples from Israel's history were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, if you think you are so solid and strong in your Christian walk, be careful lest you fall. If you would like a copy of today's message in its entirety, go online to searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 003. You can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl will continue his study in the book of James, examining trials and how we can overcome them. Join us then as we search the scriptures.